Hello, and welcome to the Embodying Change podcast. My name is Melissa Batati, and I work on organizational culture for the CHS Alliance. Today, you'll hear me in a conversation with Dr. Amelia Roig. When she came out with her book called Why We Matter, I wanted to talk to her because of the way she looks at the issue of power. Power is something that keeps coming up um, in conversations about well-being, in conversations about organizational culture, in conversations about people management, and conversations about mental health. And I wanted to hear her perspective on how power plays out at work. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I would like to welcome to our podcast, Dr. Amelia Roy. Hello. Hello. Nice to have you. Thanks for joining us. Um, you are a renowned social justice leader, author, and expert on intersectionality, diversity, equity, inclusion, and non-discrimination. And you've been looking at shifting the discourse on systemic inequalities in Europe through the creation of uh, the Center for Intersectional Justice based in Berlin. And you've got, excitingly, a new book called Why We Matter. So welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So why do we matter? So we is, um, yeah, I mean, it's an indefinite we, but we're really looking, when I say we matter, I'm speaking about the people who've been denied um, this value in our society. I'm speaking about all the oppressed groups who've been constructed as inferior, mm -hmm. who've been marginalized, who've been, um, who've been subject to tremendous violence. And um, so that's why this is a self um it's it's a yeah it's it's a statement really why we matter is a statement it's just like making visible all the people who've been oppressed meaning mm -hmm. who've been kept small who've been kept invisible who've been exploited so i'm speaking about um you know people of color black people i'm speaking about you know all ethnic and racial and religious minorities uh, um speaking about disabled people mm -hmm. about um members of the lgbtqi community um women with more than, you know, like generally women with more than uh, one as axis of discrimination, women as a group generally historically for sure. Mm -hmm. But I'm, you know, really I'm looking at white supremacy at mm. uh, capitalism and patriarchy as systems which are really creating this hierarchy, placing mm -hmm. a handful of people on top who have self-proclaimed themselves as superior mm -hmm. and then, you know, classifying and, and um, separating um, humanity into different groups and putting them below. Okay. That is a lot to unpack there. Um, and I'm thinking of this in the context of the aid and development sector, where we're going through a reckoning now. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of scandal in our sector and there's a lot of reflection now happening about, um, I know in some of your earlier talks, you really look at history, mm -hmm. historical context, and a lot of international assistance comes in the context of perhaps a colonial legacy. Mm -hmm. um, there's discussion in our sector now about racism yeah. that kind of underlies there. And I know you've worked in the past at places like ILO, Amnesty, GIZ. From that perspective where you're coming from, could you talk a little bit about how those oppressive, the oppressive systems or oppressive behaviors might be coming through in, in our workplace? Yeah, of course. Um, so in the workplace, generally, they come through because, you know, they come through everything. There is no single area in our lives that is left intact. 
and that is not touched by oppressive systems. You know, if we look at our intimate relationships, they're touched by oppressive systems. So um, the development sector in um, inverted commas um, is deeply ingrained in white supremacy, mm-hmm. um, in patriarchy, but mostly in white supremacy and colonialism. It means that the whole rational mm-hmm. behind this system is to say that, you know, you have developed countries and um, they are the norm, they have the superior norm to which all other countries need to converge and need to elevate themselves to that level. Mm-hmm. So automatically it just like prescribes a hierarchy mm-hmm. that um, places rich countries on top. So Western countries, mostly white um, majority countries on top, uh, white Christian ma- majority countries on top and then uh, former colonizers as well, mm-hmm. important to mention. And then the former coloni- colonized countries, mm-hmm. uh, countries of the global south, um, are placed below, and they need to look up to the developed standard and you know climb up the ladder to become who they are. And so the very big problem with this is that the explanation for the in inverted coma underdevelopment of countries of the global south is that somehow they are lacking in some way, mm-hmm. that they are not good enough, that they are, you know, their bureaucracies are not developed, there's corruption, there's bad governance. Um, and um, this is what explains their situation. So to remedy this, um, people from the global north, the superior people are going to go there and tell them how to do things. So I'm really simplifying this and, and it may sound a little bit triggering, but really this is the essence of development work. So I'm going to give you an example that really illustrates that in a, in a very good way, mm-hmm. uh, in the ways in which the development industry doesn't really look at structural systemic issues and much less at historical issues and at the historical factors of underdevelopment. So let's take Haiti. Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world. Mm-hmm. And the main explanations that are given for uh, Haiti's poverty will be bad governance, lack of infrastructure, you know, corruption, non-functioning bureaucracy, something wrong with the culture maybe. And also, you know, like in best case, they will be talking about the climate uh, and environmental disasters as an explanation. What we don't say and what is not really put forward as an explanation is that Haiti, um, when it got its independence after the Haitian uh, revolution in 1804, which was way before all the waves of independence of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. they had to buy every single black person on the island to the French colonizers. So to France as a country and to the French slave owners. So they had to buy themselves out. And they also had to pay damages because they were taking away from them a very profitable business, right? So it means that they precipitated themselves in tremendous debt for over 150 years. And when they were finally done paying that debt, in 1957, mm-hmm. they had to pay it back to the IMF and to the World Bank, right? So it's a vicious circle. Mm-hmm. And so this is a story we don't tell. This is the historical um, systemic side of the story that isn't told. And it, Haiti is not an isolated um, case. Mm-hmm. It means that the majority of formerly colonized countries had to pay debt to their former colonizers exactly for the same reasons and continue to pay debt until today. So instead of having a development sector mm-hmm. with you know, experts coming from the north to go to the south and telling them how to do things, mm-hmm. um, canceling debt would be the very, very first step. And it would be the fair step. Mm-hmm. It would be a step that is embodied by justice. Mm-hmm. It would be a step that you know, tells us, okay, we've seen what happened. We recognize it. We recognize that rich countries are not rich because they're particularly 
smart and well-organized and have amazing bureaucracies and, and wonderful infrastructure. Well, yeah, partly because of this, because it was also built, you know, by people who were located well below in the hierarchy and mostly as well through um, indentured labor, through slavery, and we don't recognize that. Um, and canceling the debt is, that, is, is a step that would recognize that. And you would imagine, okay, so Haiti had to pay, to pay this enormous amount of money and pay out the slaves, but then at the latest, at the abolition of slavery, in the in the French uh, Caribbean, so I think it was in nineteen in eighteen forty eight, at least for Martinique Guadeloupe, um, maybe you know, but at least in this wave of abolition, mm -hmm. that maybe they would cancel the debt, that maybe they would say, okay, so it doesn't make sense, let us pay you back. Mm -hmm. No, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So canceling the debt is not even reparations. Mm -hmm. Canceling the debt is just the right thing to do, and reparations would mean that you know the colonizers have mm -hmm. to pay. Uh, large sums of money to the formerly colonized countries. All right. Well, let's talk about power um, in our, I don't know what to call it really anymore. Is it development or aid? There's a lot of thinking yeah, you, about we that. We can call it development because this is what it is. Like uh, giving it a new name would not do, you know, would not wouldn't change. Good. No, it wouldn't change. And it would also make it feel less harmless, less harmful. Yeah. Let's call it development because this is really what it's about. It's about developing underdeveloped countries. It's about developing countries that are seen and constructed as being inferior. And that's wrong. So we need to have a word that just also reflects that. That's Sorry, wrong. That's that. But uh, we will get to the word solidarity later because I know yeah. you talk about radical solidarity. Um, but the power issue for me seems to be something we haven't figured out when it comes to how we're operating in our sector where we're trying to, um, some people call it localization, where there's more resources provided directly and more support and more space provided to those who are on or at the scene, more local community-based support. It's not uh, trickle down from one place through another intermediator, through another intermediator, through another intermediator. And part of the reason we haven't made as much progress on that is this whole idea of how is power transferred? How is power, what they say, released? What are you seeing or what are you thinking from your work on that idea of power? Because in humanitarian sector, there's going to be a natural disaster. There's going to be war and people will want to support those who are suffering, right? Oh, yeah, but that's very different. You, you know, it's relief. It's humanitarian relief is something very different than developments. Yes. And we need to, you know, separate those because they don't have, you know, it's not the same rational. Of course, if you have a, a you know, a, a disaster somewhere, you need to extend solidarity, you need to support. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a disaster that has, well, we can't say that it has little to do with colonialism and capitalism because, you know, like a lot of the disasters happening today are definitely linked with uh, climate um, injustice and with um, uh, global warming. Mm -hmm. Um, but at least it's a different thing than saying, okay, we need to change the judiciary uh, in this country. We need to establish good governance in uh, that country. We need to, you know, make sure that women's rights are respected there. Mm -hmm. Of course, we should, you know, ensure that women's rights are respected. But the whole discourse and the whole, um, uh, yeah, the whole discourse and, and, and the whole structure behind it is very problematic. Mm -hmm. So power is there. Mm -hmm. You know, like currently the people in position of power, we know very well who they are. They're the ones who define reality. Mm -hmm. They're the ones whose voices are considered to be the default, objective, rational voices of our world, you know? And so 
what we need to do is to make it visible. And currently power is not visible. So you and me may know that, but a lot of people don't see power. A lot of people don't see power. And that's a problem because if you don't see power, then you cannot uh, tackle power imbalances. So how do we get to the radical solidarity? Or is that something people should read the book to learn? I think people should read the book. <laughs> I think people should read the book. And, I mean, and, and also, to be honest, it's really difficult to explain radical solidarity in uh, such a short time. I, I can give it a try. I would say that radical solidarity is about step, you know, like putting aside your ego. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about understanding that highlighting someone else's oppression doesn't make you guilty. Mm. It gives you in some cases, uh, uh, accountability and responsibility, it doesn't make you guilty because nobody is guilty today for the, uh, you know, enlightenment time and, you know, scientific racism and coloniza colonization and slavery, but they're not guilty of it, but they, 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 they um, bear responsibility because they still benefit from those systems. It means that white people, people from the global North mm -hmm. benefit from those systems today, even if they weren't there to establish them. So radical solidarity means recognizing this. Mm -hmm. It means, you know, not taking it personally when people highlight their oppression. It's not about you. So if a disabled person highlights their oppression as being a disabled person and speaking about able-bodied people and how, you know, ignorant they are, mm -hmm. well, I shouldn't take that personally. It's not about me. I should make space for her and listen to that and try and try to understand what can I do to mitigate the effects of this oppressive system for people with disabilities. And so that's why um, radical solidarity requires inner work from us. It requires that we um, decenter ourselves and that we stop individualizing oppression and, and, and start uh, conceptualizing it as a system that is rooted in history mm -hmm. um, from which we benefit some of us mm -hmm. on some axis and others we may not. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yeah, and that it's a collective um, task that we need to embark on. I'm so glad you brought up inner work. I'm in touch with a lot of people who are, it's not their day job, but inside their organization, they're trying to promote conversations about race, conversation about harassment, conversations about other things they're seeing, in behaviors that they know aren't right, aren't fair, aren't sustainable. And uh, some have formed groups uh, mm -hmm. to look at this and they keep getting stuck. Uh, there's to keep there's the resistance or inertia or um, the momentum seems to be s slowing down. What advice would you have for people who are trying to do the inner work and who are trying to collectively confront these issues but are running into barriers well you know it's not a linear work and it's not like it's not smooth it's mm -hmm. always going to be difficult you know so there's always going to be barriers mm -hmm. um i think it's uh you know awareness is so important you know in this work that we need to do and um you know for my part i'm doing a lot of healing work um mm -hmm. when it comes to oppression when it comes to you know, owning who I am and trying to liberate myself from societal norms who are really oppressive and speaking my truth, which is very healing for me. Um, for example, this book has been part of that process. And then, yeah, do you have uh, any concrete examples of what might be such barriers? I think that 
first no, naming what you're, you see something's not right. You want to see a change to, to name the alternative behaviors mm -hmm. or norms, and then to try to propose to the leadership in an organization, we need new policies, or I guess you would, you might've heard of as gaslighting. Someone comes and say, what you did in that meeting has racist undertone or has made this person feel excluded or I seen I noticed a pattern and then it and then it becomes what you have said about personalization it's like mm -hmm. no 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 I didn't do that or you're too your tone is off yeah or it's almost like blaming the person who brought it up that they're yeah, out exactly. of line so that's funny that you're saying this because I've, I've written just like yesterday a post mm -hmm. on um on gaslighting I haven't posted it yet but it's really what it's about, you know, saying that gaslighting mm -hmm. is a central feature of oppression. Mm. It's a central feature of oppression because, um, well, you know what? I'm just going to read you my post. Okay, <laughs> good. Oh, you're hearing it first here, folks. <laughs> so gaslighting keeps systems of oppression alive. It is a form of psych psychological abuse and manipulation, which is meant to make someone doubt their reality. Mm. Denying the reality of people who are marginalized is easier than denying the reality of people who belong to dominant groups because the reality is what our society defines as the objective reality. This is why gaslighting comes from a place of power and privilege. When people from oppressed groups try to speak their truth, mm -hmm. they're usually met with skepticism, suspicion, and mistrust and gaslighted. It is all in their head. They're making things up. They are playing the victim. Gaslighting is a central feature of oppression because it safeguards power and the constructed reality that is attached to it. Once you understand it, you can empower yourself to speak your truth and not let yourself be, be manipulated into thinking your perspective is not real mm -hmm. because it is very much real. Oppression is real and our resistance is too. Nice. And that's really, you know, like little phrases like, um, which may seem harmless mm -hmm. uh, and they're not necessarily malicious, of course, but they can be tremendously harmful. And, you know, it can be like, oh, are you sure what racism or, oh, you know, it could have happened to me. Or, you know, it wasn't meant like that. This is, you know, like this is never done with malice. Yes. But seriously, people who say that, they have internalized power so much yeah. that they don't even realize what they're doing. Oh, another thing that people are hearing, because we're, I deal mostly on the humanitarian side and there's a lot of emergency response. People, hey, this whole racism thing, we don't have time for this. We're dealing with response. This is, not a priority or it's not important or it's secondary what do you think about that yeah i think it's just like so simply so simplified and so naive and so ignorant mm -hmm. it is so ignorant and so heroic it's so like white savior you mm -hmm. know like look i'm saving lives here we don't have the time to talk about the issues that people are saying are issues i decide what the most important is i decide what priority is this is, this is, yeah, this is a white savior mm. complex phrase to say. Mm. Another thing I've heard is, oh gosh, another American issue dominating the discourse of aid and development. Oh my God. So first yeah, of all, that's her, I've heard that. Okay. Yeah. You can tell me like debunk, debunking myths because I like doing this. <laughs> this is a myth and this is really, uh, you know, like we're talking about marginalized people in the U.S. We're not speaking about the mainstream U.S. discourse. This is not imperialism. Mm -hmm. People who raise those issues of post-colonialism, of, you know, intersectionality, of uh, anti-racist thought, 
they are not people in positions of power. They are people who've been oppressed for centuries on end. So no, it's not American imperialism. It's not like old white men dominating the discourse saying this and like, you know, it's spinning over the borders of the US. Nothing to do with that. So this argument is like also equating a country like France with a country like Peru and saying, oh, both of us are, you know, victims of American imperialism. No, please no. This is not what it is. And this is like distracting from, mm -hmm. this, is, this is very presumptuous. And this is also uh, a gross misunderstanding of what is at stake. When it came up in my conversation with people, it's more of, it's an American problem that the way America treats its minority groups and people oh, of color, yeah. okay. it's an American problem. We don't have that in a, maybe, for example, a country in Asia. This is something that, again, is taking up space in the discourse where we have other things that we're trying mm. to achieve. That's that's kind of where. That yeah, I see where this from. is coming from, the whole like diversity debate. Yeah. But, you know, what we have to see is that oppression is a global phenomenon. So, you know, in some countries, it may not be race. But mm -hmm. it may be caste, it may be ethnicity, it may be religion, it may be the rural um, uh, urban divide, which mm -hmm. is a class-based issue. Yes, There are hierarchies everywhere. There's no single country where there are no um, social hierarchies that are, um, you know, structuring oppression. Or if there is, please tell me, I'm going to go live there. But there are no, <laughs> such, no such country. Um, and so I think it's all a matter of also in this field, you know, like people working towards um, the end of oppression to not take on that paternalistic role. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, let's say an American person um, going to Cambodia and saying, okay, you need to deliver yourself from oppression. This would be equally problematic. So I agree with that. I agree with saying that, yeah, it could be problematic, but every time it's a, you know, it's an issue that needs to be analyzed case by case. So as we close this conversation, and I'm sure people are going to just jump to your website to get information on your book, I understand your book is currently in German, but it's getting translated into different languages. No, we haven't found, I mean, we're in the process of trying to find a, a, an English speaking publisher. And uh, once this is done, yes, I will inform about this and I hope that it's going to be soon. Yeah. If they want to learn more about you and your work i'm sure they can follow you on twitter at emilia zenzile yeah emilia zenzile so uh, uh, instagram i'm more active on instagram okay. rather than uh, twitter um yeah excellent emilia so zenzile. for those people who totally are up for radical solidarity and who really want to take on these issues do you have any advice for how to do so without burning out? Unfortunately not. You know, that's my big problem. That's my big problem. I need to You're find not alone. So, yeah. But I think it's, you know, like it's of course. Um, so no, I don't have, uh, I have a lot of theory, mm -hmm. but it's a very different thing to, you know, know theory and then apply it and right. practice it. I have like, I'm taking some steps uh even more and more and more you know where i'm like prioritizing for example i'm meditating every morning mm -hmm. and i've been doing this for three months now like really every single morning meditating and it's it's uh, it's a good practice it's something that has um and spirituality is extremely important for me so having a spiritual practice is also what's keeping me afloat and my son as well i have a six-year-old son and and it's uh kids are great to keep balance I have, a, I have a six-year-old son oh really yeah, they're and, exhausting, and and uh, but they are so balancing, and uh, I'm so grateful for him. So grateful for him. 